Hello and welcome to Better Construction with Sean McStay, the podcast where we discuss design and construction techniques, products, and details that lead to a better built environment. All right, welcome to today's episode of Better Construction. I'm very excited to have uh, Deborah Byrne here with me. Uh, for those of you who don't know Deborah already, Deborah is a designer, uh, trainer, a speaker, a policy change advocate, and a writer, um, also an, an architect working on some great uh, passive house projects. Um, Deborah has almost 20 years of experience in the architecture, planning, and real estate industry. Um, very skilled project manager, sustainable builder, and problem solver. Uh, Deborah's a constant advocate for change. And I agree with that because I've known Deborah for a little while, and that is certainly the case. So, Deborah, first of all, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show today. You're welcome. Um, I like to start things off. It is a traditional interview questions, but I really find these stories interesting. How did you get here? In your words, how did you get to where you are? Um, well, firstly, I'm actually an engineer, not an architect. Okay, I'm perfect. That's in good. this office. <laughs> good, good. Um, which, you know, creates a lot of uh, nice conversations with an office full of architects. But, um, but how I got here. Uh, so here for me is what I do now. So uh, um, I guess in 2007, I first stumbled across Passive House by accident, I was doing my professional licensing uh, submissions for, and I had to write, um, you know, one of those really difficult 500 word essays that should really be a thesis, but you have to say it in 500 words. And it was, uh, you had to create an opinion on something in sustainability and then develop it and prove it in 500 words. So um, when I started to decide what I would what I would talk about, I stumbled across Passive House. And strangely, back then, the only uh, writing I had on Passive House was from the UK because everybody everything else was in German, and uh, and they it, it it wasn't something that was successful or deemed successful. And so it intrigued me that something that the Germans took on. And could do so well, but certainly wasn't able to be successful in a milder climate than as the UK. And uh, roll on two years, and I was working as an engineer on a build it as a, I had a small practice, um, building consultancy practice. And I had taken on a certain element of um, environmental work in that practice. And I was a building energy uh, assessor for. Um, one of the Irish government agencies, and uh, they invited a whole bunch of um, as building assessors to Germany to, in co uh, collaboration with, I think, the German-Irish Chamber of Commerce, and they invited us to the Passive House Institute conference in Frankfurt. And I said, oh, I'm intrigued with this because the last I heard about Passive House was it doesn't work here. Or when I say here, as in the, you know, uh, Irish type climate, um, with the Irish climate being very similar to the British climate. And uh, so I said, yeah, I want to see how the Germans can do it and we can't. And so then this became my life. <laughs> and I think, Sean, as you know, that anyone that stumbles across Passive House, it's, uh, it's almost life changing. And it's kind of the answer to all of the struggles you've had to figure out how you respond to the environment 
Um, because, you know, we know all the bad things that we do to the world and we continue to do them because if we're going to continue to develop, we have to actually damage the earth more. And then there was never, there was never a, an offset to that. And so suddenly Passive House was that answer for me. Um, and I guess the difference is that the, the culture in uh, Europe is different in the sense that um, there's an expectation that we would do less. Whereas here, it's, it's a harder conversation to have because people want to do the same and maybe make some environmental impact or environmental changes, but not really change how they're living. Whereas in Europe, we're being told you have to change how you live. And so then it was like, well, this is what you do. You would, you know, you would design a, a building this way and you would change a little bit how you live. I, you know, by using this and therefore have a brilliant building that looks after you for whatever number of years. And I, I also spoke to the fact that, you know, um, in Europe, there's an expectation that buildings last longer than 30, 40 years. So it added to that. This was like a new construction. We had seen, say, from the 70s, 1970s to the early 2000s or maybe the early 90s where we were building quicker with um, materials that were not as impactful as um, older materials and were, you know, were there, we were having to deal with the consequences of them 10, 15, 30 years down the road, whereas Passive House had kind of gone back to, you know, first principles and said, how do we build um, simpler, longer for, for, you know, for the benefit of everybody, so... Anyway, that was very long. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. No, that's that's perfect. And I mean, for me, so for you, Passive House is obviously a, a big passion for you. And I, I agree. A lot of people who are in the industry, once they get there, they, they stay there because it's it, it means a lot to them. Um, how did you get into being an engineer? Was it kind of always the plan? Was, was there you know, some steps along the way? How did, how did that come about? Um... Yeah, it was, it was, it's kind of weird, kind of boring. Um, it Weird things are not boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the atypical girl, girl roles just never appealed to me. And at a time in my life when, you know, you're trying to decide what you do for the rest of the life, which in Ireland happens really, really early because mm -hmm. their expectation is that by the age of 17, you're going to university and you know what you have to do. Well, you're supposed to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Um, I My original degree was civil engineering. And uh, I guess with uh, the way engineering is in Ireland, you're more you're like something like civil engineering covers a greater spectrum here is very specific it's purely an infrastructure in ireland um you know someone who's had a civil engineering background because civil engineers were the first engineers they have um a building they would have a building engineering background as well um so it wasn't that i set out to you know dig holes and roads forever and you know create tunnels and whatnot it was it's kind of like that base engineering degree that is the path to all others um, how I decided that, um, there was, you know, I was growing up in the eighties when 
Ireland was relatively poor and suddenly we had an influx of European money and there was construction everywhere and suddenly it was interesting and there was machinery and equipment everywhere that had never been seen before. And I was like, okay, this is something that may intrigue me. Um, and I, I satisfied the mathematical mind that I needed to, needed to be okay. fed. Um, so that's that's really where, like I said, kind of boring. Um, went. Oh, that's not boring at all. That's actually really <laughs> interesting. Um, went to engineering school in Cork uh, at seventeen. Um, met professors that I would still hold in the highest regard today. Um, I still follow what they do on LinkedIn. I'm always super impressed by them. Um, but what I liked about them most was they were the, in the middle of like, you know, when you're learning about um, structural engineering and, you know, large civil engineering, which is damaging to the earth. At the same time, they had a very pragmatic approach to um, the environmental aspects of engineering. So, um, so they had two particular engineer uh, professors that, um, you know, in the civil engineering world, you're a lot of time you're talking about water and wastewater. And so it was like how to protect the water. And, and which is kind of weird because I don't know if it was the same in Canada. And I think we're similar in age, Sean, but like there was the urgency to save the ozone layer in the 80s. And then the U.S. government fixed that by, you know, changing the rules for CFCs and the rest of the world followed. And then it kind of disappeared. And then it was like the best we were doing was recycling. And then no one really cared anymore. But it, it kind of, when I was in school, it was like, well, hang on, this is the stuff that bothered us before. And this is how, this is a good way to respond to it. This is how, you know, yes, we have to, you know, dig up the ground to put in better wastewater treatment facilities so that we, you know, our effluent is better. So it's safer, so we can live safer and then do less damage to the world as opposed to, you know, what we were previously doing was letting untreated effluent out into our seas and our lakes. So, you know, there was that, suddenly that, balance it was like okay so yes we to live we have to do a certain amount of damage but what is our positive response to that and so then I was always looking for that positive response of like yeah okay if we have to do this I mean we need to, the same as like with buildings you know uh people are saying that we need more and more buildings and then you think oh no that's more damage but you know we can't expect people to live in tents so we have to do something so if we're going to do it let's do it the best as we can and so like that's kind of trying uh, that's being my approach as best as I can, as much as I have control um, through my um, business life uh, since I've been working. But it was good to have those professors that thought that way. And they were ahead of most of the people that I, I grew up with, my peers or anybody around me. And, uh, you know, they've written great um, literature since then. One of them is... Uh, um, heavily focused on biogas because Ireland has uh, declared that they will stop using fossil fuels, I think, 2025, um, which for Ireland is a big deal because they have little or no natural resources. And one of the uh, resources they did have was peat, which is from the ground, which is pure, um, it's basically compacted rotted wood that we use for fires. And so that's not allowed anymore and so now and they've also declared that they will have um 
electrical vehicles by 2030. So that you can't buy combustion engine cars by 2030. So for a country that small to take on those big things, it's it's a big deal. And it's professors, professors like I had in school that, you know, um, basically changed the way that I think um, that have, I guess, got me here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm weirdly, and this is weirdly, but disappointingly, um, it's almost 20 years since I did my dissertation in university. Yeah. And my uh, it was actually reducing carbon in transportation. But the sad part is about it, it's 20 years and nothing really has changed. So yeah. that's, that's, that's been uh, somewhat of a, you know, something that I've always kept track of. Like I look back and think of, you know, things that we knew 20 years ago of things that have come by us in the 20 years, like the smartphone um, and how much we've developed in that area. But then we look at something that I wrote as a 20 year old and it's still, it's still exactly what I wrote then is, is as important and prevalent now as it was then, which is disappointing yeah. well it, it is and it's, it's interesting because there seems to be industries where that's the case i mean if you look at um say say look at to be something completely, completely opposite space exploration yeah. you know the space exploration from the 50s to the 70s massive massive improvements in reach and, and scope and everything else since then realistically small amounts of improvement yeah. um and but other areas, like I said, computers, etc., definitely uh, much more yeah. the case. Uh, yeah. When when you're looking at balance, when you're approaching projects, um, obviously the budget is always a concern, and there, mm -hmm. that's always one side of the balance. Um, how do you encourage people to kind of incorporate that balance that you're talking about that you started learning, you know, when you're in in university? Yeah, I think it's um, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, I think, well, I'll say that for the for the type of client that's totally in control of their spends, um, they they totally understand that if they are proceeding with a building, they're they're going to own and operate that it needs to work for them for a very long time. Um, for for our clients that are. Um, you know, quite often you have clients that have two pots of money and they have control over one pot and not over the second pot. And then, so they'll have a capital budget, but have no control over the operational budget. So, you know, usually if we're talking about, you know, maybe a potential increase in the cost of construction, depending on, you know, uh, depending on the type of building we're designing, um, you'd like to be able to say to them that the operational budget would pay for the capital. And so you offset one off the other, and then it works and it's not a problem. But what often happens is we have, and you find this a lot with um, some of the larger, even the not-for-profits, just because they're maybe how they're funded and who has control of those pots that, um, you know, if we had said to them, well, just get a, you know, just get a, a mortgage and then you use the, you know, additional mortgage, you use the operational budget to pay that off. They'll say, well, I can't do that because I'm not allowed to do that because I have this pot of money and the other, you know, it doesn't matter about that operational budgets there. We're just not allowed to cross transfer. So there's a lot of left hand, not talking to the right hand things that are happening. Um, but for the most part, for the clients that we've had so far, 
um, they've been relatively, and the owner operators, they've been rel- relatively in control of boat budgets. And they're very, very aware of um, their life cycle and uh, how they have to operate the building. And, you know, a lot of them are dealing with um, really bad housing stock right now. So they're fully aware of, you know, what it's like to be left with a with a, a building that doesn't work for them and, you know, it doesn't provide them what they need. So, you know, we're the very fact that Passive House is based on a uh, low usage of uh, building equipment, you know, and then we're saying that the equipment is being used less. So then there's less operational requirements then, you know, they've just see their entire um, future being more peaceful <laughs> because yeah. now they don't have to call out, you know, people to help them to fix stuff because it's not getting broken and it's not it's not uh, being overworked and it's not wearing out because the building is doing what it was supposed to be doing and, does, you know, working as it was supposed to be designed. So that's how it's been going. Um, but we're still we're still struggling with uh, getting beyond the affordable housing uh, people. Uh, yeah, I, the difference here, say in Ontario, unlike um, BC, well, BC has the step code, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. I know I know um, Vancouver has condos occurring, but um, for the most part, the condo owner is ignorant to what they're buying into and it's not their fault i mean nobody's telling them they just assume that the buildings are designed to code and will meet code and they'll be good buildings but i guess they don't understand that they you know after a certain period of time when the builder's gone and they're now the owners of the condo core that maybe what they're left with is not what they expected and they have no ability to fix it because where's that money going to come from the condo fees are supposed to run you know the day-to-day operations of the common space it's not supposed to retrofit a building to pacify standards or to zero carbon standards or whatever standard so um and i think that's the biggest thing is that people don't understand they don't understand what it is they should be getting they don't understand what it is they should have uh they don't understand that something simpler exists they don't understand that um that uh there's just a better way to do things um because we're not mandating these changes everything's optional and and i guess you know we need to start to be a bit more aggressive everyone knows there's a problem with the building industry not the building industry but you know how we do things it's and you know um I don't know if the intent of these podcasts were just getting into the climate crisis, but uh, like everyone knows that they're having an impact. I think everyone believes and knows that they are having an impact on the climate. I mean, so many people might want to deny it, but the reality is we are. And it's um, not, not everyone knows how to respond to it. And I don't think people think that they have any control over it. So they're leaving it to the greater... Uh, governments and uh, organizations to do something and the thing is that the stories and the messaging has been told isn't giving the right information so people don't know what to ask for anyway 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that there's there's a wide range of, of levels of belief of like we're entirely responsible for the climate change. We're partially responsible and the earth also has cycles. There are some people who think that there's not that we're not responsible at all. I mean, that's that's neither here nor there for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but worst case scenario, we're building buildings that are more comfortable and more efficient to live in, and we're putting less pollutants into the world. And even if that doesn't change anything, even if there isn't some natural cycle in place, these buildings are more resilient towards mm-hmm. being around in you know worsening cli- uh, climate conditions. Yeah, well, when we have a major climate crisis, you'll want to find your nearest pacifist, right? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, even out here in BC, when we had the forest fires, uh, were really bad. Not this year, thankfully, but the previous two years, um, the pacifist owners that I was dealing with were very happy to be having mm-hmm. all of their air that's coming into their home mm-hmm. filtered because yeah. the outside air was quite bad. Yeah. I, th- I think that there is also, and this is kind of leading to my next question, I think that there is a fundamental um, people don't understand. There's a misunderstanding about what code is. I, I, I think people think that you know they watch HGTV and not to slam HGTV. I like it. Yeah. But, um, they watch it and they say, "Oh, we're 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 building to code," as if that's a good thing. And yeah. it is good. It's better than not building to code. But code is the bare minimum. Exactly. I, mean, I, I always tell people, I don't think you walk into a car dealership and the car salesperson says, hey, this this car has the bare minimum amount of brakes, airbags, and seatbelts to keep you yeah. safe. Uh, yeah. Do you want to buy this one? Of course not. Yeah. Oh, do you want to buy this? And this is the biggest investment of your life ever. Exactly. Yeah, to double that. Exactly. So for you, um, you were mentioning that people who are owner operators, they get it a little bit more because they're operating the building. They see those operational costs mm-hmm. for people that are for developers, maybe the build to spec or, you know, people that are, uh, you know, not necessarily going to be realizing those long term savings that come with an efficient building. How do we access that market with better construction, whether it be passive house or, or net zero or, or low carbon, et cetera? What, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Um. So I don't see that it is a more expensive building. Um, For the most part, every building that I've worked on, whether it be a single family home or the bigger buildings, and notwithstanding, the idea that there's a standard cost for construction is just ridiculous because nobody has the same spec. Nobody has the same expectations. Like when someone says, oh, you know, uh, affordable housing should be $220 a square foot, but, uh, you know, a high-end hotel is $450 a square foot or a commercial interior fit-out is $500 a square foot. Relative to what? Like, what are they putting in? What is their baseline? What? So this nuance of, you know, this magic number per square foot is kind of ridiculous. Um, but if you bring it back to it, just even Passive House, Passive House is based on functional requirements and you meet the needs of the people and the building by those functional requirements. So look at your building itself as what does it need to have function, you know, to function. And it doesn't need to be uh, marble. You know, it could be reconstituted stone. And so why would I not put in a better envelope and put in a different flooring system? Um, We can make things look as fancy and as sexy as we want and do a better envelope. Like very, my very, very, very first pacifist client in Ireland, um, when it came down to the numbers, they were, they said, 
oh, um, you know, this is our bare minimum budget. And I, you know, quite often in Ireland, there's this expectation that you have this huge house, this huge kitchen, and the kitchen has to cost you 50,000 euros. And if you actually look at the cost of that kitchen versus the entire construction budget, it's like a quarter of the budget. Why would you put a quarter of your budget into your kitchen? Like, it just doesn't even make sense. Like, you're cooking there two hours a day, and you're going to put a quarter of your budget into the kitchen. So that conversation was like, okay, guys, let's not spend it on the kitchen. Let's put it in the walls. And then as soon as that made sense to them, and that they realized they could have the look they wanted from Ikea, then it became the best thing they've ever did. And this is kind of that, it's the same conversation with the developers. Um, we don't need marble floors. We don't need high-end kitchens. We don't need, um, we don't need glass walls. So, you know, yes, okay, they're cheaper, but, you know, five, 10 years time, they're leaking, they're letting in water, you're dealing with condensation, you're overheating your building to deal with the consequences. Like none of it makes sense. So um, just take it back, take it back. Like you look at Irish buildings and this, uh, I guess this something that I always remember. So, um, and it goes, that idea of first principles of building. So I, um, in my history, I worked as a um, a building advisor, well, not a building advisor, but an engineer stroke project manager for um, a bank in Ireland. And obviously, as a bank in Ireland, they have massive amounts of um, their property is basically very, very, very old um, heritage buildings that are made of stone or brick. And so one of the buildings I was working on was a limestone building that was built in 1780, I think. And it was one of the first buildings in the city at the time. And uh, one day, oh yeah, and a weird thing happened. Like the Queen of England had never been in Ireland in a hundred years. And then suddenly she was coming to Ireland and she was going to go up this street. And a few weeks before it happened, bits of the building started to fall off. And so I was called of like, oh, the streets shut down. What are we going to do? And of course, we had to scaffold the entire building to see what was happening. But basically, it was a 1980s retrofit to the building that caused a limestone building that was, you know, coming up, uh, you know, 220, 230 years old, had started to make the building to fall apart. And um so it was the idea that we put on non-breedable membranes on top of a stone that needed to breed and drain. And it's as simple as that. I mean, we can do that with our envelopes, you know, have the right membranes in the right place, have the insulations in the right place, drain it properly, let it breathe properly. These aren't things we didn't know before. So it's not like, you know, people are terrified by this new idea. Oh, you know, it's German. Oh, it's, you know, something that isn't done. It's not for this climate and so on. But buildings exist in Europe over four or 500 years old. And it's because they've allowed the buildings to, and the materials to breathe and to um, respond to the environment we're in, they're in. So it's no different now. I, you know, this isn't complex. We don't need to make it like, um, this scary thing that everyone should be afraid of. And I think that's another thing that kind of lies behind all of these different standards 
people think they're new and they're scary and they're effort and they're going to take time. And the reality is it's way we always should have been doing it. We did it before. We could do it again. And so that's why I think a lot of the conversations that people are having are kind of daft. I mean, I, I, I'm on the same page as you for sure. I mean, I think, that, you know, I often am talking to, to maybe a homeowner or a developer that's thinking about <laughs> doing passive house. And, you know, you look at that building and you say, okay, how many times in the next 40 or 50 years are they going to update their kitchen countertops or change flooring or do those things pretty, pretty regularly? How, how difficult is that? Not very difficult. You know, pull it out, put it back in. You can do that. How many times are they going to update their insulation or their air tightness or their windows? Pretty infrequently, unless something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree. Spend the money there and mm-hmm. then and go And if you ahead. do it, it's complicated. And it's yeah. not easy. And it needs, you know, it needs, you know, it may need permit influence, interference. And you may need, and then you're suddenly, cha- and then you're changing the course of things. Like originally it was a certain type of wall. And now you're going to add on a new piece of wall. and um, But will the wall act the way you intended it to the first day? Because now you're putting an insulation in a different layer than was never intended. So that kind of goes back to that conversation that but that 200-year-old building, you know, it worked perfectly well until somebody decided they need to put um, tar on top of the the parapet. It, you know, it was, and, and you know, if they had just looked at the building and said, no, this building needs to drain, how do we drain it? And let's maybe change the way, the, the drainage pattern. But instead they trapped the water and the water, the building started to disintegrate. Um, and we're doing the same a lot of the time with retrofits, um, you know, even at any of the um, cities that are looking at, you know, giving money for retrofits, you know, are the, are we doing it the right way? Um, I, it's still a bit of a sticky plaster thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to get X amount of dollars to put um, foam on the outside of my house to make it super insulated. But what does that do to my inside of my walls? Has anyone looked at it? So um, that's a bigger issue with this, you know, jump to sustainability and, um, you know, doing things green. Are we doing it the right way? Are people actually looking at what they're doing and how they're doing it? Um, so it's not as simple as changing the counter. Um, it, you know, changing the counter has no consequences. Um, updating your envelope does. And every, and that, that goes back to that idea of that holistic building. Pacify starts out initially as being a holistic building system. And so, and and even if you retrofit it, you have to look at it holistically. It's not a single item. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's another pre, uh, misconception with how we do things. It's that you can throw things at it and fix it. So. Yeah, I agree. So when you're talking to clients about um, this, obviously your clients are kind of very, uh, you know, that many of them are focused on this, that they, they understand it. They're a little bit more technical. Um, if you're maybe looking at someone who's listening to the podcast is maybe looking at building their own home or they're uh, a builder working on, you know, single family homes, what, uh, what kind of one thing or two things would you suggest they look at if they want to kind of take some steps towards better construction, but maybe they're not quite have the budget or time at this point to go say a full passive house construction. Um, hmm. yeah, I, 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 I don't know, Sean, cause I kind of feel like once you look at the envelope, you just do it. Um, because 
once like once you upgrade your envelope, then you automatically can reduce your well, you're automatically, but you know, then suddenly you can reduce your mechanical systems or the sizing of your mechanical systems. So, you know, how do I tell them just to do say insulation and air tightness and then not say, well, now there's a consequence, a good consequence, and tell them, well, now you should resize your your uh, equipment inside. And I guess that holistic thing, it's very hard to, you know, just say, do one or two things. Yeah. Um, you know, retrofit, fair enough, because, uh, you know, it's hard to live in a building and unless you're going to move out and got it and start from scratch, it's a little bit, uh, so it's a little bit different. And there is, you know, there is a way of, uh, you do have to look at a prescribed path to that retrofit of, uh, you know, like that step-by-step approach to meeting a retrofit, whether it be passive house or almost passive house. Um, but for me, just the the very fact that passive house is a holistic system that if you, and you should look at your envelope first because you can never go back to it, as we've just said, that once you do your envelope, then you've kind of netted the benefits from the interior. So now you should also do the rest. So it's kind of... I, it's very hard to separate it. Like, because if we do an air tightness layer, then you have to do mechanical ventilation. So, you know, where do you stop then? So, like, just do it. And as I've said, I haven't, I don't know if I finished the point from before, though, where it's, I haven't found there's a cost premium. Because once you start to look at what's important and take out the the fluffy stuff, it ends up being the same cost. So why would we have a conversation where we'd have to do it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. And I think that's why um, Passive House has become uh, such a driving force in Vancouver because the BC step code doesn't make a lot of sense for people. Because once you start, once, like, if someone says, oh, yeah, you know, this investment, the, the one thing you're going to, you know, the biggest amount of money you're going to spend for the rest of your life. Um, and you, and you know, in 2020, you have you build a house to a certain level, but in five years' time, you have to change your windows. Why would you do that? You may not have the money in five years' time. I know for sure if I bought a house five years later, I wouldn't have money to spend on new windows. Yeah. So, you know, going back to that idea, okay, I can live without my nice kitchen. So I'll have my nice windows now. Um, yeah, I find that I struggle to separate it because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in the numbers to me to separate it i think it'll always cost you more in the end so just do it now okay i like that yeah and i, I agree i mean i think uh, there's a lot of people finding with step code that if they're going to build a step code three house and then they look at the cost to build a step five house which is close to passive house not quite but close um there's there's really not as big of a delta between those two things it's just a matter of where you're allocating the funds in a step three house you're spending more on mechanicals in a step five house you can get rid of some of those and that offsets the yeah, increase exactly. in costs for air tightness yeah and the reality is Money is always cheaper now than in the future. So, like, if you buy whatever, uh, you know, if you look at any economy chart, the cost of money always goes up. We we always look back on things like, you know, oh, such and such a property was sold for twenty thousand dollars, you know, in this, you know, nineteen fifty, and we always say that that money, that value today is, you know, a million and something. So the cost of money always goes up. So why would we 
you know, if we know that, then we do it now because in 10 years time, the cost of it is it's more. Everything costs more in the future. So just do it now. Um, and then, you know, right away you get the benefit because the energy saved is right away. And if there was a premium, it pays up pretty fast. So that makes sense. <laughs> so that, I mean, you might've just answered it, but what I one there's always two questions that I kind of end these things off with. Um, I was asked, what's uh, what, if you could just magically fix any one misconception about better construction, what would it be? There's so, so, so many. But um, my biggest fear right now is um, for the city to understand the planet <laughs> is um, what people understand. Uh, what people think is to be true. And so, you know, I could pick on individual things in buildings, but ultimately the the term green and sustainability bother me a lot. Um, what people try to classify as green, what people try to say is sustainable and how things are advertised. Um, it's really, really terrifying what people are allowed to say um, and get away with saying um, my my biggest rant in the last week has been um, SodaStream and Hellman's. So Hellman's are congratulating themselves for their 100% recycled plastic bottles. And SodaStream is congratulating themselves for saving the planet because you now didn't buy bottled water. Well, I never bought bottled water. So how did you save 2,000 bottles of water from me? And saving the bottles of water isn't saving the planet. And like, why do we think that? Why do we think that plastic you know, not having plastic in the system is the goal for the planet. It's one small, small target in all of the other things we've done wrong. And so I like, um, with no disrespect to Vancouver City, because I think they've done fantastic uh, jobs to kind of push Canada, the rest of Canada to catch up. But the very fact that we have this conversation about straws or plastic lids and that it has to take two or three years to implement and that people think that that's good. And like, these are silly things. Like, why did we ever need straws? Can't you just drink out of a cup? <laughs> so I think they, you know, going back to the, like, the very European mentality that I have is it's use less. Why, like, why are these even conversations we're having? Like, it's just a ridiculous nuance. And so a lot of the struggles I have in Passive House is in North America versus the European conversation is how to meet the goals of Passive House while still providing the ideologies of North American comfort. Um, because people have this expectation of being in control and having, um, having everything at hand whenever they want. Um, and... Uh, I've even had this conversation with <clears throat> the Institute where we're, you know, trying to figure out how to make cooling work in our large scale buildings because people don't want to behave differently. And so why are we not asking people to behave differently? Um, so I guess it's a more bigger world <laughs> expectation, which would feed down into the building industry. But I think the, the greater thing is, I think there needs to be more education and people need to understand things so that they can ask for the right things and they can have the right things and the, the right things are there. Um, but what's, what's getting in the way is the greenwashing. So greenwashing is my issue. Okay. If we can get rid of the greenwashing. That would yeah. Be nice. 
Yeah, that is fantastic. And then I guess my last question always is, because I collect books and I love books, um, if you could suggest any book, whether it's a personal book, a professional book uh, to someone, what would you suggest? Yeah, you're going to laugh at this. So I thought about this a lot because there are lots of books you could think of. You could think about the books that my professors wrote that have, you know, kept me um, focused. I could think about, you know, very philosophical books about how we should live better. Um, but honestly, it's the one that always catches my heart the most. And it's maybe it's because I read it to my son and maybe because he thinks he's the Lorax or wants to be the Lorax, but it would be the Lorax because I feel because there's a gap between, say, what you and I know versus the populace because of what, you know, what we do and what we see every day. It would be nice for people to understand that everyone's responsible and everyone has a say and everyone can act. So I think the Lorax's last sentence is always catches me and I always want to remind people that they can make a difference. We shouldn't be waiting on anybody else. So I don't know. It's a bit soft, but <laughs> no, that's great. I, I I agree. I mean, I'm a big fan of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, and, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's really like we it's have a good to message. Care. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, if we don't care who does, it's clear that the people in power are out of whack right now. But um, yeah, w people need to care, and um, people can't be sticking their heads in the sand and saying it's somebody else's problem. I agree. Good. Well, thank you again very much, Deborah, for right. being on the show. I'm um, going to put links in the uh, podcast description to the social media for Deborah and her firm. Uh, so if you have any questions or if you have projects you want to send their way, of course, they would <laughs> probably be happy to talk to you about them. Um, definitely, uh, thanks again for your time. And uh, thanks, we'll go from there. Yeah.